Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. me to the New Testament book of 1st Corinthians. The New Testament book of 1st Corinthians and 1st Corinthians in chapter number 1. The book of 1st Corinthians in chapter number 1. We're about halfway through our series of how we got our English Bible and time is going to start progressing pretty quickly. That we started by defining some terms and then we started to explain that we did have evidence of the Bible in the first, second, third centuries. Then we began to talk about the... um, the preservation of Scripture through the headquarters of the local New Testament church of Antioch during that time. We spoke about the corruptions that started to creep in. And now as we're progressing, we're uh, fast-forwarding and getting to another major segment of history, all centered around a single man by the name of Erasmus. And with this, we want to start in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter number 1. The book of 1 Corinthians in chapter number 1, and notice with me in verse number 26. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and in verse number 26 the Bible says this, For ye see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are." Now, if you don't mind, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, will you mark a phrase that we find in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 1? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and notice the phrase, not many wise men. Not many wise men. And with this, we're going to use this as a jumping point to speak about a person of history by the name of Erasmus. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, I'm just asking that you would help us have a good understanding of your word and have a good understanding of the history of how we got your word into our language. And we're thankful for the steps and the people that you used. Again, I just ask that you use me. And I know that I'm I'm less than a fair than an ideal instrument, but I have every desire to be used. So the best I know how, I surrender myself to you now and ask that you fill me with your spirit and that you get your work accomplished and that we could trust you in these things. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 26. Notice that phrase, not many wise men. Now, when God wrote this, he did not say not any wise. That's an important distinction. There's an M there that he said not many wise. Meaning that there's not a lot of wise men that God uses, but there are some. Now he didn't say not any mighty, but he added the M there. He said not many mighty. There are some mighty people that God uses. There are some people who are wise that God uses, just not many of them. 
If God wants to reach down and choose his servant, a man of great learning and great skill like the Apostle Paul, God can do that. And I'm thankful for it. I'm glad that you don't have to be dumb as a rock just to be used of God. (laughs) He could certainly choose a Paul just as easily as he chose a Peter or Andrew, James or John. You don't have to be a carpenter or a fisherman with no schooling or training to be used of God. Uh, And the reason why I say that is because every once in a while I'll hear some radio preacher that says, we need to just become more ignorter and ignorter. And I said, you're on your way, man. I mean, We're thankful that there is some schooling that we can have. There are some people who have great intellect that God can use. They do pop up from time to time. Erasmus will be one of these men. Now there's not many people who can come through the scholarly, educated route that God uses. But there are a few. Again, Apostle Paul was brilliant. Erasmus is brilliant. There are a few every once in a while that will pop up that God uses. Now, there's only one Apostle Paul in the early New Testament church. In later centuries of the church, of history, there are going to be men that raise up like Erasmus and like a Martin Luther, who have great intellect and great skill, who God is going to use. So let's talk a little bit about Erasmus' life. Now, just to get a taste of this, we're going to go through a quick timeline, and then we're going to go back to his great works, but just so you can get a sense of who this guy is in the first place. Let me introduce him to you. He was considered the greatest scholar of the Renaissance. Now, that's a big deal, that he was the greatest scholar of the Renaissance. He bears the title in the secular world, so the secular historians call him the Prince of of the humanist. The prince of the humanist. Now don't let that phrase scare you. Today that word humanist has changed definitions like a lot of words in the English language. (laughs) A humanist in that day is not the same as our day. When we think of a humanist in our day, we think of somebody that worships humanity. But in that day, a humanist was just a man who used his talents and ability that God gave him for the benefit of others And for the benefit of mankind. So when it was said that Erasmus was the prince of the humanitarians. The the humanitarians are humanist. What it's speaking about is someone who had great skill. Who used it to help his fellow man during that time. It wasn't that he was worshipping humanity. He was trying to be a help to his fellow man. He was born in 1466. He died in 1536. He was born in Rotterdam Rotterdam in the Netherlands. His Dutch name was Gerrits, which he probably referred Erasmus other than Gerrits. Just, you know, guess. He received the best education available within Europe, studying at uh, Deventer and later on on Stein. In Stein. He was ordained as a Catholic priest in 1492. Now, the last session, we gave the illustration about the train, how it represented the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church would gather the greatest and the brightest and the most intellectual for training. Well, Erasmus was one of those people who were on the train. Then God would get a hold of one of these men on the train because he was in the system and he also had access to the materials. And this is going to be an advantage for Erasmus because he has access to all of the libraries at Europe and all of them are going to open up the doors for him. Erasmus was one of these men. 
He studied in Paris in 1495. He traveled to England in 1499 and came under the influence of John Collet and Thomas More, who were two great Renaissance scholars. And so he was greatly influenced by people who were trying to train others how to think and how to be a benefit to others. Just don't use your education to make you smarter. Use your education to help other people. He returned to France and then back to the Netherlands and then visited England again in 1405. You're getting a sense that he's traveling all around. He's not just in one place, but he's traveling quite often. From 1506 to 1509, he worked and studied in Italy. He lectured at the University of Cambridge, England from 1509 to 1514. He, there he promoted a new learning, which was a return back to the study of the Bible himself. So imagine this. So he's teaching in Cambridge. And while he's at Cambridge, he's teaching his students, hey, guess what? If you really want to learn, read the Bible. If you want to be a betterment to man, read the Bible. Hey, if you want to be a better man, read the Bible. And he had a, a great influence well, it just so happened that one of his greatest students was a bright person by the name of William Tyndale. Imagine how that happened. We're going to talk about when, uh, Tyndale later. And Tyndale is going to be a very big key inside of how we got our English Bible. And guess who one of his teachers were? Erasmus. He moved back to Basel, or moved to Basel, Switzerland in 1515 and began to publish the Greek New Testament. We're going to go back and spend a lot of time in this here in a bit, but this is a big thing. From 1516 to 1521, he lectured in the University of Louvain inside of the Netherlands. Uh, 21 to 29, he went back to Basel. From uh, 1529 to 1535, he went to Friedberg. He returned to Basel in 1535 and remained there till his death among his Protestant friends in 1536. Now, that's just a quick overview. Just giving you a timeline of his life that he traveled right... It, he had a lot of contacts. Someone said that he was in contact in personal correspondence to 600 of the brightest minds throughout all of Europe during this time. He was someone that had great influence and great things. He was a giant intellect of the world from the death to the Apostle Paul to the Reformation. He was the intellectual mind that came out of that period. There was no greater mind and no greater scholar than Erasmus. His adult life was spent traveling to the libraries of the world, reading, collecting, searching, writing, and publishing. Now I know some of you may not think that's a great life to me. That's amazing. Oh, just to be able to go to the great libraries and read books and study and take notes and gather all that information. He was living the great life and he had access. They were all opened his doors for him. He was offered a high position of the royal courts of the king of England, Henry VIII, of the king of France, Francis I, the king of the Netherlands, King Charles. Everyone wanted him on staff. He was highly sought after by every institution. Not only the kingly institutions, but everything else. He turned them all down saying he had a higher calling. He said, I want to research and publish books without anyone pulling my strings, without anyone influencing me. I want to be able to have a true scholarly position and not the position of whoever's bankrolling me. You know the golden rule, right? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. 
He says, I want to make sure I'm truly independent of everything else, that there's no influence in my scholarship and my research. He was offered professorships of the University of Leipzig and Inksling by the Emperor of Germany. So the Emperor of Germany said, hey, guess what? You could be a professor here or a professor here. Take your pick. Just come work for me. He said no to him as well. The Pope offered him a cardinal's cap if he would just come to Italy. You come to Italy, I'll make you a cardinal right now. Everyone is looking to have Erasmus on staff. None of these uh, he accepted. He turned them all down that he may, quote, bring to the world the wealth of knowledge contained in the writings of past civilizations. He said, I don't want to have any strings on me. I want to be able to give the entire world the knowledge of the ancient civilizations, which would include the Bibles, without anyone pulling my strings. Of Erasmus, it is said, he was able to do 10 hours of work in just one. He learned how to work efficiently, and he was a hard worker. The way that he worked was just amazing. He got so much accomplished. One of the reasons why I went through that timeline is I was trying to explain all the things he got to do. And that was just the surface of it. All the things he did in his life. Ten columns of the catalog of the Library of the British Museum are taking up with the basic enumeration of the works translated, edited, annotated by Erasmus and their subsequent reprints. What does that mean? That means if you went to the library in the British Museum and said, let me see your catalog, if you, they would have ten columns all annotated by Erasmus of works that he translated for the British Museum. So he would take ancient works and he would translate them. And they would have that book that was translated in Erasmus in the library. Ten columns. That's quite a bit. Maybe to get a better scope, how about this? It's unbelievable what this man was able to do in one lifetime, including translating the greatest names of the classical and patristic world. The people that he would translate into a language that people could understand would include Ambrose, Aristotle, Augustine, Basil, Christendom, uh, Cicero, and Jerome, just to name a few. He took all of their works of iniquity and he translated them into languages where people could read at his time. He took them all. He was brilliant. By 1530, up to 20% of all book sales in Europe was all by Erasmus. Now that's a big deal. Now I understand books were not as prevalent as today, but in any time frame to have 20% of all sales attributed to you, that is a big deal indeed. And so he would translate, he would work, he was a researcher. So what we're trying to say is that his big claim to fame was not just the Bible. This was someone who did a lot of work in a lot of areas. He was a brilliant, he was an intellect. He didn't just research the Bible, he researched everything. And he had access to it all. And so whenever he's going to come up and explain what he's doing and why, no one's going to be able to question his work ethic or his scholarship because he's top class. Now again, we're, lay, we're trying to lay a foundation before we talk about his great work. We're trying to say who this guy was. He wasn't some guy stuck in the basement forever and was bored and read something on the internet. This is someone when, you know, the big quote for the last couple of years is do your research. He did his research. 
He had the ancient things translated from the original tongue to a common language. So he wasn't just reading a translation. He did the translation. He was brilliant. Most of his writings served to expose the ignorant superstition, unscriptural beliefs, and pagan practices of the established church, whether it be Roman, Catholic, or other. Basically, he said, this is the truth, and you deal with it as you see fit. Without Erasmus, there would be no Reformation. In fact, the Pope later on said, you know, Martin Luther over there, the reason why he's causing trouble is because of you, Erasmus. Without you, Martin Luther couldn't do that. In fact, Martin Luther and Erasmus were good friends at once, and then they got in a big fight about free will, and that's a whole different discussion over there. But they, they had a lot of... Uh, correspondence. Luther would not have nailed his 95 thesis on the wall of Wittenberg without Erasmus. He was very much a great influence. He was able to say, Erasmus was able to say, this is what you told us, the early church writer said, and this is what you said the Bible said, but guess what? This is what they really said. And so he was able to get rid of a lot of the superstition and a lot of the nonsense and go direct to the source and say, this is what the Bible really says. This is what the church uh, authors originally said. And so they didn't have to take people's word for it. He was able to bring it to light. His work on the Greek New Testament was his greatest work. It was published in 1516. This was the basis and practically the entire substance of what would later be known as the Textus Receptus. We'll go into more detail in a second, but this is a big deal that he was the one who helped produce what is called later on the Textus Receptus. Now, instead of going to the translations, Erasmus leapfrogged them all and went directly to the Greek text. So let's not worry about all these other translations. Let's see what the Greek has to say. He leapfrogged Jerome and went to Origen's work and then translated and compared the two. Hey, look, this is where the corruptions came from. It came from Origen. By the way, thank you, Erasmus. Erasmus was the one that pointed it out where all the errors came from and did his work on Origen. Now, when Erasmus took the pure text from Antioch and bringing the Alexandrian text based off Origen and compared the two, Erasmus did for the world 500 years ago what Bible-believing pastors today are trying to do when we compare the Westcott Hort products to the authorized version. Basically, the same lecture that I'm giving you for this series, Erasmus did 500 years ago. So this isn't new under the sun. Erasmus had already been doing this with the same idea. Then he translated the church fathers and showed them not only do their writings do not match the Alexandrian text, but they do match the Antiochian text. Remember, we had talked about that several lectures ago. What did the church fathers, the writers go? What did, um, what did Polycarp write about? What did Ignatius write about? He was able to say, hey, look, they had the Antiochian text. They didn't use Origen's text. They had the right text and we could prove that as we translate the works. Look, we can prove it. And that's helpful. I like proof. Now, nobody could call his work into question because not only was he their intellectual equal, he was also their intellectual superior. And they knew that. 
They knew that this is a guy they could not question with his work and his scholarship and what he was able to do. Now that's helpful when you are able to have someone who's trusted above reproach and without strings. And he's not doing this to put a slant. He's doing this because it's the truth and he wants everyone to be exposed to the truth. When you have kings and popes and universities competing for your services, you are the top of the field. Everyone wanted them, and he said no to them all. But again, that was part of the thing. Everyone wanted him because he was the best. And so when he would translate something and produce something, he was without challenge because of his work and the way he defended his work. We'll talk about that in a second. So let's actually talk about the Greek New Testament. This is his most famous work and his most helpful work. And it happens to be the one that's helpful for this series as well. Erasmus published five editions of the Greek New Testament. The first edition was published in 1516. It was a di uh, diglot, which means it's a two-column book. So on one side, it had the Greek text. On the other side, it had Erasmus's own Latin translation, meaning that he would uh, take the Greek and he translate it into Latin. So you would have the Greek text. You would have a proper Latin text. Then on the side, you had some of his own notes where he would say uh, things that he saw and his own personal notes. The edition was prefaced, so the first edition, was prefaced with a dedication to Pope Leo X, an exhortation to the reader, and a discussion in defense of Erasmus's method of translation. Now this is a big deal. We're going to talk about these in just a bit, but the preface to the Pope, we're going to talk about that in detail, but it was addressed to the Pope. I dedicate this book to the Pope. Then it was an exhortation of the reader saying, Reader, I want you to read the Bible for yourself. Here's the translation. Here's my work. And then he had a defense of Erasmus' method. So how did I translate this? How did I do my work? He was able to defend what he was doing, how he was doing it, and why he was doing it. So that way his scholarship not be called in question. Basically, he was explaining how did he do his work. So it was above reproach. Make sense? He was asked by Martin Van Dorp from the University of Louvain not to publish his book. In fact, he was begging him, please don't publish this. Don't publish this. Why? Because it would show up serious errors in the Latin Vulgate and thus weaken the Roman Catholic book, uh, church. So this is what happens. Here's a man defend, dedicating his work to the Pope because he's a faithful and loyal son of the Roman church. But he's being begged by the people who eat at Rome's table not to publish this work because if you show what the Bible text is supposed to say and the people line up the Roman Catholic Bible with that text, it's going to weaken the church. So he was begging, please don't publish this, please don't publish that. That's pretty amazing when he's able to say this is what the Bible says and people are afraid of it. Erasmus wasn't concerned with strengthening or weakening a state church. He just wanted to get the truth out. He was concerned about getting the truth out so people could get their hands on it and see it for themselves. So now we come to a big word, the contemplation polyglot Bible. Now this is going to be very important to the story of Erasmus's first um, Greek New Testament. 
1514, Cardinal Francisco Jimenez uh, de Cineres uh, finished the Contemplation Polyglot Bible. Now, again, defining terms, a polyglot is a multi-column uh, Bible. I have one at home that has four different texts in one Bible. And so you could actually compare. And so uh, Cardinal F uh, Jimenez was going to be the first one to, actually he was the first one to complete a polyglot Bible. But this is where the story takes a twist. This text was based on Jerome's Latin Vulgate. So basically, basically, him being a cardinal, it's pro-Catholic. He's basically trying to say, I've got a new Bible out. It's Jerome's. I want you to see it for yourself. It was sent to the printer, and because of various reasons, it was not printed until 1522. Now, something we need to be reminded of is that the printing press is still new. And so he sends his finished work to the printer and it's going to take till 1522 for it to get out and finally get printed. Meanwhile, Erasmus was hired in a printer in 1515 in Basel to prepare a Greek New Testament. Now, to be honest, they heard about what Jimenez was doing, that Cardinal was doing, and they said, hey Erasmus, if you hurry up, I could print this before those other guys. Okay, and so quickly within that year, he takes the Greek text and he translates it and puts it into a Bible and they hurry up and get it to printer so they could beat the other guy. Erasmus's New Testament is, came out of the press in 1516. It did have some mistakes in transgression and typographical errors. Basically, he hurried up and got it to print. And because he hurried up and got it to print, it had mistakes in it. My wife's laughing because I do that all the time. I understand that thing. I got to hurry up and get it to print. And then next thing you know, there's all kinds of mistakes in there. So some blame the rush to get the project to the printer. Oh man, you know, if he would have just took his time. But they were on a rush. They were trying to get it printed before everyone else. Meanwhile, the contemplation polyglot Bible is delayed after delay after delay. They're trying to raise money because it's a big deal. So remember that the printing press is a brand new invention at this time. And as a reminder that in order to print a Bible or to print anything, they had a big wooden press. But then you would have wooden letters, single letters, that you would have to put upside down and backwards in order to print it. And they also had Gothic type and not Roman type. So they had the fancy curved letters. And so could you imagine taking a tweezers and putting all the Bible letter by letter and putting an order upside down and backwards and not make a mistake? Especially if you're in a hurry? So yes, there was mistakes made. Because this was still a new invention, it was very expensive because you had to get the press, you had to carve out each of the letters, and you had to have dozens of letters. You couldn't just use one alphabet. You had to have lots of them to choose from. And so there was a printing problem. There was a lot of other errors, but it, made, it kept pushing this back more and more and more. And we're going to see it's actually from the Lord. As this guy is having problems getting it to print and getting it published, Erasmus guy says, you give it to me and we'll get it done. Let's go. And so they go ahead and get it done. So when the, while the printer of the uh, contemplation polyglot Bible is raising funds to print, Erasmus New Testament is now in the hands of the scholars. And they're able to read it for themselves. 
In fact, they have it for six years. So when the poly, uh, Contemplation Polyglot Bible is finally printed, Erasmus has already been around for six years and they did not read it independently. What they did is they read it in light of Erasmus and they go, uh-oh, there's a lot of things. Is that what it's? That's not, no. And they were able to compare and say, oops, this Bible is not right at all. Look at all the verses that they have taken out. This translation's not right. It doesn't match up. What in the, and what it does, it exposes it. In fact, the Contemplation Polyglot Bible, they only printed 400 of them. Meanwhile, Erasmus's got thousands and thousands and thousands of prints. Because it just made this fade to obscurity when they looked at it and said, this is just a bet. Now, who would use this? And so God allowed it so the people could have Erasmus's uh, work six years and, uh, before they could even get this. And so it just didn't match up. Erasmus's preface to the New Testament was this. Would they that they would translate into each and every language so that they may read and understand not only by the Scots and the Irishmen, but also by the Turk and the Sarkinians. Would that the farmer might sing snatches of scripture at his plow and the weaver might hum phrases of scripture to the tune of his scuttle and that the traveler might lighten with stories from scripture the weariness of his journey. He says, let me tell you, I want everyone to have access to the Bible. So everyone's talking about the Bible. They're singing the Bible that everyone can have the Bible for themselves. That's a good goal to have, isn't it? Now, why would he have that? Now, remember, he is not a um, humanitarian, meaning that he's not trying to worship nature. He's honestly trying to help people in their lives. His second edition came out in 1519. Martin Luther used this edition for the basis of the German translation of the New Testament. So Martin Luther got this Greek translation and he said, you know what? I'm going to translate this to, into German so all the German people could read it for themselves. And by the way, Martin Luther did that in record. I think it was eight months to translate the entire Bible. It's pretty amazing. Martin Luther was another brilliant mind. Erasmus' third edition was published in 1522. In this edition, he put in 1 John 5-7. Now, this is a big deal. So this is the first one of his translations that actually had included the verse 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. What does that say? It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. It is the clearest verse of the Trinity found within the Word of God. And he included it. Now, this is a big controversy even today uh, with different Bible versions. Why? Well, he said in the first edition, he believed that 1 John 5, 7 should be there, but he didn't have enough evidence. So he said, I believe it should be there, but because I didn't have enough evidence, I didn't put it in there. In the second edition, he said, I have enough evidence, or I have evidence, but I don't have enough to be able to defend my position without question, so I didn't put it in. But by the time he got to his third edition, he says, there's no doubt whatsoever. I've done the research. I've proved it. This verse should be in here, and this verse is there. So, let me ask the question. If Erasmus did all of this study and was able to prove conclusively and he backs up his research that 1 John 5, 7 should be in the Bible, why is it missing from so many people's Bibles? 
Well, that's a good question. Why is it not in the other modern versions? Remember, the other modern versions will actually break apart verse number 8 and kind of bounce it back and forth. They'll have it erased. They'll try to have something else, but they don't have that verse in there. Why not? Because it's all based off of the battleground of the type of manuscripts they use and the family of thought. 1 John 5, 7 is the battleground verse dealing with the versions. Depending, do they believe that Jesus is God? Not a God, but the God, the very Son of God. This is a big fight. And books have been written on this. But Erasmus was able to prove and say, this verse was in there. I don't know why someone took it out. I could prove it should be in there. And it's now in the Greek New Testament. Now you could read it for yourself. It's not missing. It shouldn't be missing. It should be there. The fourth edition was printed in 1527. It had three columns, the Greek text, the Latin Vulgate, and then a Latin, uh, Erasmus' own Latin translation. So Erasmus would translate from the Greek text into Latin. And then he could compare the Latin of him versus the Latin of the Roman Catholic Church. And people could clearly say the things and the differences that were missing. In the 5th edition, the text of the Latin Vulgate was just omitted. Meaning that nobody cares anymore. It's been proven and beaten up. We already know we're not going to use the Latin text. We're good with it. We don't need to print it in the 5th copy. So, we also have to acknowledge that there are many criticisms over Erasmus and the Greek New Testament. And so, we want to be fair. We want to acknowledge them. There are our, our criticisms. So what are the criticisms? Can we answer them? Because we want to defend him. If he is a big cog inside of how we got our English Bible, we need to be able to defend who is this guy, what did he did, and why. So here are the criticisms of Erasmus. First of all, they say the Greek text of Erasmus... <coughs> Sorry. Hey, I'm missing a thing. The Greek text of Erasmus brought howls of protest from the Roman Catholic Church. Today, modern critics of the authorized version, so the people who criticize our Bible, have to find some way to disparage the Greek text of Erasmus. Meaning that we believe that the authorized version is the perfectly preserved word of God for the English-speaking people. The people who do not believe that the authorized version is the perfectly preserved word of God have to find some way to get rid of Erasmus or to accuse him. So they're going to criticize him. Does that make sense? So if we could get rid of him, then we could get rid of the authorized version. So here are the criticisms. First of all, they say Erasmus was a humanist. And by the way, he was. We explained that. <coughs> a Hold on. Where am I going? There we go. A humanist in the 16th century was not a man that worships man. He was a man that sought to attain higher standards of the human civilization. Renaissance humanists saw their civilization at a low ebb due to 1,000 years of repression and oppression from the Roman Catholic Church. So basically, they looked and said, you know what? We're not better off than what we were 1,000 years ago. You look at Greek culture. You look at even Roman culture, Babylonian culture. Look at all those ancient cultures and look at all the freedom they had. When people had a Bible, they had freedom. We don't have freedom now. You understand that to live in the Roman Catholic days, to live in the feudalism system, that you were either a serf or you were a noble. And if you were a serf, you were nothing. 
And it was a big deal. And so we owe a lot of our freedoms to Erasmus who said, you know what? If we could just give people the Bible, maybe we could get some of these freedoms back. They sought, the humanists of those days, sought to restore the glories of the former civilization through the revivals of their culture. Now, while these early humanists did not leave God out of the picture, neither did they necessarily promote a biblical view of civilization. All they wanted is that they treated the Bible like any other classic, but they said people need to read it. They need to have access to it. Now, Erasmus's motive, we're being honest, was not evangelistic, nor was it Erasmus's motive to spread the gospel. Erasmus's motive was just to better his fellow man. And he said, if people could have the Bible, people would be better. Well, I'm thankful for that motive. <laughs> now, a second criticism was that Erasmus was a Roman Catholic. And he was. All of the reformers were Roman Catholic until they were driven out of the church. Most of them were against their will. Martin Luther never wanted to leave the Roman Catholic Church. They kicked him out. Calvin didn't want to leave. They kicked him out. <laughs> Swingley didn't want to leave. They, all of them. They wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church from within. But he was part of the system. But remember what we said about the train? The train had everything. And so while he was on the train, he had access to all the libraries. Now, Erasmus at the same time was never termed a good Catholic. Good. He was strongly attacked, or he strongly attacked, the beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic Church in his writings. Remember, he wrote more than just the Greek Testament. He wrote quite a bit. And he just exposed, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right. <coughs> he was offered positions by the church, including that of a cardinal, and he refused those offers. In fact, he was influenced by the voice of the Dutch separatist groups. I'm having issues here. There we go. He believed in many sound biblical doctrines. In fact, he believed in free will by, while Martin Luther did not believe in free will. And they wrote big arguments back and forth. That's what broke up their friendship was this idea that Erasmus believed in free will. He had a lot of good sound doctrines. Like most of the reformers, he desired to change the Roman Catholic Church from within its ranks. He said, let's just conform and fix the things within it. Not realizing the whole thing was too broken to be salvaged. Now, we also admit we're not following Erasmus. We're not following his doctrinal beliefs or anything. We're just recognizing that he was some smart guy that God used to help give us our Bible. We're thankful for that. We don't even know if he was saved or born again. There's arguments for and against. We'll just be honest. We don't know if he was saved. But we are thankful for how God used him. He was used his intellect and ability and gave him <coughs> or allowed him to liberate the word of God from the power and the influence of the Roman Catholic Church. Again, without Erasmus, there would be no reformation. He was a big cog in all of this. Another criticism of Erasmus is that Erasmus dedicated the Greek New Testament to the Pope. Remember, I had said that at the very beginning. His first one he dedicated to Pope Leo X. All right? So, what about that? Well, no doubt Erasmus did this because of his Catholic background. Especially during those days, he was still considered a good Catholic. So, like every good Catholic, I'm going to dedicate it to the Pope. But in addition, there was something else to it. The only way a Bible could be read by the influential people was with the Pope's approval. And so he needed the Pope to go ahead and say, all right, this is approved, here you go. People could read this. And 
he didn't read what was inside. He said, hey, it's dedicated to you, Pope. Okay, people could read it. So figuring it was going to be good. Now, also consider the consequences of publishing an unapproved Bible. And Erasmus had seen what happened to John Wycliffe. Wycliffe tried to give the English version of the Bible out to the English people and translate it. And the Catholic Church hated it. They did everything they could to stop him. They hated Wycliffe so much that 40 years after his death, they dug up his bones, put his bones on trial, found him guilty, and then burnt his bones, squished them, and then threw them in the river. That show him. And so Erasmus saw that happen and said, you know, maybe I need to make sure that this is approved because I don't want that to happen to me. I mean, like it or not, that's what it was. I want people to read it and the only way to read it is to dedicate it to the Pope. Uh, the next ones didn't get dedicated to the Pope, but the first one did because he was still in the good graces at that time. Another criticism is that he was criticized that his Greek text was a rush job. Oh, yeah, I understand that one. It was. The printer was trying to beat the, poly, uh, the contemplation polyglot Bible to print. Yes. And so when you hurry up, rush things to printer, my wife's laughing at me, there's going to be mistakes. Almost every work that I've got published <laughs> is uh, mistakes. My first discipleship manual. I was trying to get it printed before I did an actual conference on discipleship and was trying to have it available after I preached on discipleship. And then I looked at it and went, oh man, I'm like ashamed to give this out now. Uh, I've done so many jobs like that trying to get it to printer because oh, I'm trying to hurry up and get it done, get it done, get it done. No wonder it took 10 years to get the Reese Chronological Study Bible out because we were trying to make sure that everything was right. And then we still ended up getting a part of a verse cut off and printing. Anyways, I understand this. All right. It's easy to do, especially back then when the printing press isn't just push print off the computer. But when you're trying to line up all the stuff on the printer backwards and inverse and trying to get it, and trying to hurry up and get it done, there was mistakes. And it wasn't translation mistakes. It was copy mistakes. It was mistakes that come because you were rushing and getting things done. There were a lot of typographical errors. It happened. But, by the way, <coughs> every book that has been write, written to the defend the Word of God, every <coughs> book has errors in it. Defending the Bible. Saying that the Bible is without error. Every message you hear speaking about the Bible is perfect has errors in it. God does it so that way we don't trust men... We trust his word. <laughs> and we're thankful we can always trust his word, which is perfect and not some man. I make mistakes. I probably made a lot of mistakes even preaching this message here. And some YouTuber will find it and tell me all about it later on. Good. <clears throat> Another criticism about Erasmus is that he only used a few Greek manuscripts and those were of late origin. This is a big deal now. So they said that he only used a couple of Greek manuscripts. So let's explain this. He only used two manuscripts for the bulk of his work. And then he had another two that he did for comparison just to make sure he was doing a good job. Then there was a fifth that he used to translate the book of Revelation. Now, why is this? Now, all of these manuscripts come from the 11th to 15th century. But that's only part of the story. Erasmus had access to and knowledge of many other manuscripts through his travels. Now remember, this is a big deal. He had access to them all. 
every library, everything, he had access to them all. He knew about the Codex Vaticanus. It was actually listed in the Vatican Library in 1481. He knew about it and he looked at it. He took one look at it and said, no, this is not the right text. I'm not going to use it. And this is someone who would know text. He studied them all. He divided the manuscripts he found into two groups. Imagine that. He had one group of the Antiochian text and the other group of the Alexandrian text. From origin, he was able to decide. He knew text better than any of us. And he was able to say, this is Antiochian, this is Alexandria. Antiochian, Alexandria. And he was able to separate the text of which type they were. When he looked at Codex Vaticanus, he dismissed it and said, that's Antiochian. I'm not going to bother using it. Why should I use another text when it's messed up? I should just use good text. When he compared the Alexandrian manuscripts to the Antiochian manuscripts, he chose to use the Antiochian manuscripts exclusively in his work. So by the way, that will necessitate he uses lesser works. Now if I've never explained this before, let's explain it. Remember printing press was a new invention in Erasmus's day. So how did people use it, uh, get Bibles in those old days? They had to write them by hand. And so if you're a good Christian and you're supposed to read your Bible every day and you take the scroll and you read it like you should, what's going to happen to that scroll? It's going to fall apart. And so what's going to happen is that you're going to have to get a new copy all the time. I go through Bibles every uh, three to five years now where it will just get worn out and I have to get a new one. <laughs> now in my library, I have a couple of new Bibles that I never use. All right? So if an earthquake happens, lava happens, and someone 500 years from now goes to my office, and they look and say, oh, look, this is a brand new Bible still in its box. This must be the Bible he used all the time. Would, he, would someone think that? No. They would say this is the one he never used. They would be interested in finding the one that's all worn out, right? Because if you're reading your Bible like you should, it will be worn out when you're not. Now... <laughs> Because of those texts, if it was a good Bible, there wasn't a plethora of Bibles. People didn't have Bibles sitting on the shelf. All the Bibles were being used all the time, right? And so there was only late manuscripts to be used because the old ones had been used up. Does that make sense? By the way, we'll talk more five sessions from now talking about where did we get these older texts. One of them was literally inside of a Catholic monastery and the Catholic priests were saying, well, this has been on the shelf for a while. Let's just go ahead and burn it. And they started taking big leaves and throwing them in. It's an old corrupt Bible that was full of mistakes. And a guy went in and looked at him and said, oh, what are you doing? And they went, well, this is trash. It's been on the shelf. Nobody uses it because it's full of mistakes. Oh, really? Can I borrow it overnight? Okay, sure. And he quickly copied the gospel record of Barnabas overnight. <laughs> and then he uh, gave it back and said, Hey, well, since you're getting rid of it, can I, can I just take it off your hands? Well, they started to realize that maybe it's valuable to him. No, we're going to preserve it and keep it. Okay. And uh, later on, he got some Russians to help back him and whatever else. But it was an older manuscript. Why was it older? Because no one used it. Does that make sense? This is where that oldest thing came from. So why did Erasmus have to use newer manuscripts? Because the other ones had already fallen apart. He had to use intact ones. Does that make sense? Logical? Okay, cool.
All right. Uh, now, Erasmus was aware of all the variant writings uh, from his own personal study of the church father. He was able to study and able to know where each of these came from, which of the variants. He was also aware of the short ending of Mark 16. By the way, there are many Bibles that are missing the end of Mark 16. The last nine uh, verses, you get an old NIV or an old RSV. Those verses are gone. He was aware of that and he says, no, I have much proof that they're supposed to be in there. He was aware of it. He was uh, also aware of the arguments against the passage of the woman taken in adultery. And, and John chapter 8, get an old NIV and an old RSV. They're missing that story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery. They say that it's not supposed to be there. Erasmus says there's plenty of proof it should be there. See, he was aware of this, able to study and able to verify all of it. He chose on the basis of the sermons, preaching, and letters to the early church and included them in the text saying these passages are supposed to be there. He chose two manuscripts, not because that's all he could obtain, but because he was aware of the knowledge and said these are the manuscripts that have the right text. Why should I go look at everything else when I already have the right text here? Does that make sense? He was aware of them all. He knew that they were representative of the Byzantine, the Antiochian text, and that the text represented the true text of the Word of God. Here's another um, argument. They say that Erasmus supplied the text of the last six verses of the book of Revelation. So according to the story, the, in the late manuscripts Erasmus used, they were missing the last six verses of Revelation. By the way, that's part of that promise, a warning that God says don't add or take away God's word. And so no wonder they don't want that passage in there. But that's neither here nor there. But he says, <laughs> according to the story, they said, well, those verses are missing. Erasmus made them up and put them in there himself. Well, that's silly anyways. The truth is, is that he had access to four versions that had those verses within the text. So he's able to say, look, this has it in there. I'm not making it up. This is text. Let me prove it to you. But again, that's what the story goes. They were able to prove later on that everything he said was verified. He didn't add anything, but it was proven. But people still criticize that. Oh, he just added to the Bible. This is another one. In most of my books of Erasmus, I try to compare. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But this is one that comes up often. That Erasmus asserted reading from the Latin Vulgate to his Greek text. Meaning that... They said, uh-uh, his Greek text, he actually, when he didn't like something, he would take the Latin Vulgate and put it to his Greek text. And they say that to try to say that his Greek text is polluted and that we don't have the right Bible. All right? So that's the accusation. According to Edward Hills, Erasmus got several passages wrong by using the Vulgate. And here's the listing of the passages that Erasmus supposedly had gotten wrong. Now, all of these verses are held up over time and later study and evidence proved to support Erasmus' work. Basically, I'm just fast-forwarding and telling you that he was proven right after all that they make an accusation and it's still an ongoing accusation, but it's proved. But again, they don't want to accept Erasmus. So let's talk about Erasmus' fifth uh, edition and beyond. Erasmus' fifth edition became known as the Textus Receptus. Now, this is going to be interesting because it's a fancy way of saying receive text. It's not an official name, but it was a name that was given to it, just like our authorized version. This is not an authorized version. <laughs> it's what we call it. It was just called the Bible. 
but people had to give it a name. In fact, we'll talk about it later, but for 300 years, our King James Bible was called the authorized version. That's what everybody called it. Until two guys named Westcott and Hort came up with a revised standard version. And so when they went to the bookstore and you had an authorized version and a revised standard version, well, no one bought the revised standard version. They wanted to buy the authorized version. So as a marketing ploy, they changed the name to King James Bible. So now it just looks like any other Bible. King James, NIV, whatever else. But for 300 years, that's all it was known by was the authorized version. But that's not its name. It was just known as the Bible. The same thing with Erasmus's work. It was just the Greek Bible. But it began to be called the received text or the Textus Receptist. Why? Well, it was called the received text because when people that knew the Bible got a hold of the text and they read it and they studied the notes and the evidence that Erasmus chose to back up his work, they received it. So basically they said they read it, hey, this is the Bible. We can know that this is the Bible. We're going to receive it. We're accepting it as true. Does that make sense? This edition was released in 1535. Afterwards... <laughs> Stephanus refined the work. Beza took Stephanus' work and polished it uh, in about 1600. And this would be, uh, Beza's work, would be the use the text to give us the authorized version. So it's a direct descendant of Erasmus's work. Now, we had went before in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not... Many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Aren't you glad it doesn't say any? It says not many. Erasmus is one of those exceptions that was used of God, even though he was brilliant and well-educated and had all this stuff. And we're thankful for it because of his work. We now have a Bible and we have a culture that we could enjoy today. The Bible talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15 as an application. The Bible says study. That's important. There, again, I had that radio preacher who said, we just need to become more ignorant and ignorant. Well, the Bible says we need to study. And by the way, how are we supposed to study? We're studying to show ourselves approved unto God. God's the one that we're trying to get approved. He's the one that's take, giving us the test. That's who we're supposed to please. Not man, not a church, not a pastor, not your wife, not your husband, not a professor. We're supposed to be a pleased, approved to God and our study needs to be approved by Him. And not only that, it is work. It's a four-letter word, work. That's why a lot of people don't study their Bible. We barely get them to read it, much less study it. Again, Erasmus is a great influence because he was someone who knew how to work and he studied. And we should have that type of work ethic to our Bible that we're willing to study and put the work in there that he be not, <coughs> that he be not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Erasmus is a great influence. Now, we're not trying to compare intellects because we would all fall short. However, we can make the application that we should be people who are studying. And that we should be people who work at studying our Bible and knowing our Bible so that way we can be a help to others. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus. And I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920-530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.